Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, and they became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he has said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And when they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Just going to let you know I am fired up today. I usually speak uh, 100 miles an hour. And I'm trying to ratchet it back to about 300 miles an hour today, so just uh, I'll do my best. Uh, I want to say I love the last song that we sang. Like, I love all the songs that we sang, but I, but I really, like, I love the last song that we sang. It is called With Everyone, Everything. It's the one where we go, whoa, you like, did you like that? You're welcome, okay? And uh, <laughs> if you did not like that, you know, I got nothing. I'm sorry. I, that's all I got. But I want you to think about the title of that song, because it's not like with a few things. With a few things. No, that's not it. With most. No, that's not it. It's not even just with my voice. With everything, I will shout for your glory. Good grief. In the way that I relate to my husband or wife, I will shout for your glory. In the way that I parent my kids or obey my parents, I will shout for your glory. In the way that I deal with my employees, I will shout for your glory. Or the way that I work for my employer, I will shout for your glory. In my ability to be gracious and willingness to be selfless and so on and so forth, I will, albeit imperfectly, Lord, but there's forgiveness for this, shout for your glory. That's it. The only question is why. Why anything? Much less... Well, with everything. And the answer to that has everything to do with the uniqueness of Jesus. For the last 21 weeks here as a church, we have been asking and answering questions, and we come to the end of that study today with a question that deals with the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And here's the question. It's why is Jesus different from every other religious leader that has ever lived? And I'm going to go beyond that and say, why is Jesus different from every other person that has ever lived? Like, what makes him different? Because here's what the answer is not. It's not his claims, although what he claimed is incredibly unique. Think about what Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed to be God. Like the invisible God made visible in him. The intangible God made tangible in him. The incomprehensible God made comprehensible, at least in some sense, in him. He claimed to be almighty creator God supernaturally conceived in the body of a young woman so that he might walk amongst his creatures, his creation, in the same form as me, in the same form as you. And to what end? To rescue us from our failures and to free us from lives that disconnected from him are frankly futile. But that's not what makes him unique. What makes him unique is that 
having walked among us, having taken upon himself all of our failure, having suffered and died, the infinitely valuable one in the place of all who will claim the benefits of that death, having been laid into a tomb, he came forth from the grave on the morning of the third day exactly as he said that he would. The difference is Easter. That's the difference. G.B. Hardy, a Canadian scientist, said this. He examined the world's religions. He said, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. Question number one, has anyone ever conquered death? Now, why is that a relevant question? Because everybody dies. Like the mortality rate is 100%. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. It doesn't matter like how hard you work out and how well you eat and how connected you are and how great your insurance package is. None of those things will stop it in the end. Like it may prolong it, but it's coming. And he knows it. So where do we look for help? He says, when I examined religions, when I looked at the different world religions, I said, I have two questions. Number one, has anyone ever conquered death? And number two, if they did, did they make a way for me to conquer it too? Because that's what I want to see happen. And so I checked the tomb of Buddha and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad and it was occupied. And then I came to the tomb of Jesus and it was empty. And I said, there is one who has conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And then I opened the Bible and he said to me, because I live, you shall live also. There it is. And here's what happens in a room like this when I make a statement like that or I read a quote like this. You know, like all the believers, all the people who are already sold out, all the people who, as Matt said, have been walking through Lent with us, who came out on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and all of this stuff, like you're totally entered into it. You showed up this morning going, he is risen. And other people are going, he is risen indeed. And like you got the lingo, like you're all in. You've staked your life on a risen Jesus. Like I say that, you're like right on, bring up the worship team. Let's sing with everything again. I'm ready. Just pray. We're done. The kids are antsy. Come on. But if you're not that person and you're honest, you just want to go, well, how do you know that? Hey, Tom, do you have a videotape of that? Like, can I find that on YouTube? And what about G.B. Harding? Did he have a videotape of that? Is that what persuaded him? Like, how do you know that? And if I could just sort of gently turn it around just for a second, let me just ask you, humbly, really, How do you know that he didn't? Have you ever studied it? And you say, well, no, I've never studied it. I've also never studied whether or not pigs can fly, you know, and for the same reason, because they both seem ridiculous to me. But, But wait a minute. Think about it with me for a second. If Jesus Christ is really risen from the dead, guys, that is the single most significant thing in the history of humanity. Why? What are his claims? What it means is that there is a God, that the God who exists is a personal God, that the God who exists and who is personal has a name, and his name is Jesus. And more than that, it means that absolutely everything that he offers to you, including freedom from failure and freedom from futility, is a rock-solid, valid offer. And by the way, there are a lot of really, really intelligent people throughout history who have studied the resurrection of Jesus Christ, many of which studied the resurrection of Jesus Christ looking to disprove it and have walked away believing in it. I'll give you some examples. Simon Greenleaf. So Simon Greenleaf is arguably the greatest legal mind ever produced by our nation. 
He was a professor at Harvard University. He wrote a book, three-volume book, called A Treatise on the Laws of Evidence. Well, what is that all about? Well, evidence is what's admissible and what is not admissible in a court of law. Here, today, he was the expert. He was an agnostic Jew who openly mocked Christians in his classroom until some of the Christians got up enough, you know, gumption to come to him one day and say, okay, look, why don't you take your prodigious intellect and your unparalleled knowledge of the laws of evidence and apply them to the agreed-upon facts of the resurrection, not like the parts that we argue over, but the parts that Christian and non go, yeah, that happened. So he did. He became a Christian, wrote a book. This is part of what he said. He said, all that Christianity asks of men is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidence of other things, and that they would try and judge its actors and witnesses as they deal with their fellow men when testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals. The result of doing that, he says, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Wow. Dr. Frank Morrison, another lawyer, studied the life of Jesus and, and, and said this is the most beautiful life ever lived. Never seen anything like it until he got to the resurrection, which he felt like marred it. It was like, we're going, we're going, we're going, and now pigs fly. This is crazy. What, what, what is this doing here? And so in a sense, to clear the name of Christ from that, he set about trying to write a book to disprove the myth of the resurrection, and he also became a believer, and he wrote a book instead entitled, Who Moved the Stone? The first chapter of the book is entitled, The Book That Refused to Be Written. Lord Littleton and Benjamin West, two professors at Oxford, decided to write a book together disproving the myth of Christianity, and so one of them took this issue of the resurrection of Jesus, and the other one took the issue of the transformational conversion of the Apostle Paul, and they each went their separate ways, did their separate research, and they came back together to meet again at an agreed-upon time and place, both of them very sheepish, because both of them had converted to Christianity. Dr. West says this, he says, reject not until you have examined the evidence, which is exactly what I would encourage you to do. Because, I mean, here's the deal. Look, I don't care if pigs fly. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It would make me nervous, okay? It would. I mean, you know, a bird does one thing to your window, and then a pig might kill you. So just keep that in mind. Other than that, I don't care if pigs fly. I, I, I care with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength whether or not Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Because if he is, and he's different different from every other religious leader. And Christianity, therefore, then is too different from every other religion that exists. And if you'll let me kind of generalize for a moment, I'm going to oversimplify things for a second, but I want to take all of the world's religions and I want to put them here and I want to put Christianity over here. And I'm oversimplifying because I don't want to leave you with the impression that they're all the same. And I think that's a wrong impression that a lot of us move through life with. We kind of just sort of assume that, you know, it really doesn't matter what religion you believe in. I mean, they all really sort of lead to the same God. He just has different names. They're all trying to get us to do the same thing. They're, it's all accomplishing the same stuff. Like it's just variety to get to the same deal. And, and that's not at all the case. They are irreconcilably different. Study them. In some of the religions, there is a God. In some of the religions, there's no God. In the religions in which there is a God, sometimes it's one God. Sometimes it's 300 million gods. Sometimes it's a personal God. Sometimes it's an impersonal God. These are not small differences. 
Some of the religions have an afterlife. Other religions have no afterlife. In the afterlife, it's not all agreed upon. Like, what are the rewards? What are the punishments? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? What do you have to do? Like, all of this stuff is different, 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 different. But there's one thing that's the same. So I'm going to set them all over here and Christianity over here. And I'm going to say, in a general sense that all of the world's religions, with the exception of Christianity, ascribe to one rule, and that is that good things happen to good people. That is to say, we would say it, good people go to heaven, because that's our name for the preferred state, for the afterlife. Sounds fair, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of appealing. (laughs) Seems like you get what you deserve, and that sort of squares with everything else in life. Like, if I work hard in school, I get good grades. Good things happen to good people. I'm doing good by working hard. Get the point? If I work hard at my job, I get the raise or I get the promotion. If I work hard in my relationships, hey, they flourish. You know, it's like putting water on a dry plant. I mean, it's amazing how they come to life. And so good things happen to good people. Surely that's the way it works here too, and it seems reasonable until you begin to think about it and you realize, well, wait a minute, because in this bundle of all the world's religions, there's no real consensus on what good is. Now, there's some consensus But there is absolutely not complete consensus. So how do you know if you're doing good? And terrorism is, I think, the best example of this. In between the services, I'm getting word that in Sri Lanka there are bombs that have been going off in churches and in hotels right now, today. And we look at that and are horrified. That is abject wickedness. Find those people. Stop those people. I guarantee you that everybody who set a bomb thought that he was doing a good thing. That's what the terrorists believe. Like they are performing the ultimate good in their mind. So how can you be a good person if we don't even know what good is? And and then, of course, how much good do you have to do? I mean, do you have to be 51% good, 60%, 65, 85, 95, 99.9? Does adolescence count? I want to know. Don't you want to know? Let me ask you, who decides? This is like going to school on the first day of school, like in college, and you show up for class, and your professor shows up and says, hey, it's great to see you guys. Here's the deal about this class. I'm not going to tell you what the subject matter of the class is. I'm not going to give you a syllabus. I'm not going to give you any lectures. I'm not going to give you any books or any reference materials whatsoever. I'm not going to tell you at all what to study, when to study, or any of these things. Oh, by the way, your entire grade is based on what you get on the final exam, but I'm not going to tell you when the final exam is going to take place. I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to administer the exam, and I'm not going to give you sort of the grading schedule for the test. You know what? I'm out. I'm back at the registrar going, how do you employ, this guy must be tenured, like how do you employ someone like this? This man is out of his mind. Want to stake your eternity on that? I don't know. I feel pretty insecure suddenly. Something. Christianity has a different message. Christianity comes to us with a definition of good. It says this, God is good. God himself is the personification of good in all of his perfections and all of his holiness and all of his beauty. God and all of his wisdom and all of his righteousness and all of his justice and all of his mercy and all of his compassion and all of his love. God is good and therefore by definition anything less than God is not, at least according to the standard of Christianity, 
good. Now, I hope that doesn't insult you because I happen to think you're all really actually pretty darn good. I do. My mom thinks I'm good, so that's good. I got that going for me. That's a helpful thing. We do good things. We do merciful things. We do gracious things. We do selfless things. We all of us do things that in and of themselves are good. And comparatively, certainly with terrorists, we are really good. But we're not as good as God. So the message of Christianity is forgiven people go to heaven. And God, to make sure that could be you, entered into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, walked among us as one of us, took upon himself our sorrows, our sins, our failures, our brokenness, and our futility, and took his infinitely valuable life and laid it down selflessly in love for you that you might be washed and clean and forgiven and brought into a relationship with him, that you might be forgiven of your failures and saved from futility, which, by the way, is what life is apart from God. I want you to think about that with me for a minute. It's inescapable. And I illustrate it this way, okay? Everyone everywhere wants to be free. What do I mean by that? We all want to do whatever it is that we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and with whom we want to do it. Can we just agree on that? Like, everybody wants to be free. And yet, in our pursuit of freedom, here's the false assumption that we make. We falsely assume that that kind of freedom can only be found apart from God. However, the logic is compelling because we think to ourselves, now, wait a minute, if God exists and I'm accountable to him, I can't do whatever it is that I want to do. So what do we do? Because our God is freedom. We start looking for reasons to deny the existence of God. We don't do it consciously, usually. But subconsciously, we start piling up all these reasons. We listen, you find what you're looking for, you know. And so we gather up our whole list of reasons why this can't possibly be the case and God can't possibly exist. And behind all of that search is what? It's a passion, it's a desire that says, I want to do whatever it is that I want to do. And do we find freedom? I'll tell you what we find. We find slavery to the passions that we have indulged in pursuit of our freedom. We become addicts of all kinds. And we end up realizing, and for men, it's usually around age 47. I've got a theory about this, but I'll save the details. Like around age 47, you go, why am I doing this? Why does anything I do matter? What is the point? You see, apart from God, our lives look very, very much like the life of Sisyphus, this Greek mythological character who's punished by the gods by being consigned to an eternity in which every day he wakes up and he has to pick up this big rock and then carry it up a hill. And every day, by the end of the day, he gets almost to the top of the hill, but not quite only to watch the stone roll all the way back down. The next day he gets up, he does the same thing. And then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. Get the idea? Apart from God, that's your Monday. Tuesday. Wednesday. Thursday. Friday. Saturday. Sunday. Monday. If there is no God... 
if you and I are all that there is, if this life comes to an end and then there's nothing else, nothing matters. Guys, it doesn't matter if I'm a hugger or if I'm a mugger. It doesn't. And in the end, it doesn't matter if I'm hugged or mugged. Nothing matters. And Christ came to set us free, not just from our failures, but from that. And that is something to be set free from. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And you say, all right, you know, so that's good to know. It sounds great, but free from what? Well, first of all, free from having to work so hard to try to earn the favor of God, which is an impossible task because you have to be perfect to do it. Wouldn't you like to know that the Lord is pleased with you? That's what Jesus offers. He's like, hey, only good as God life ever lived. I have earned the favor of God. Bring your life to me and I will give it to you. And you will be at peace with your creator now and for forever. Freedom from shame. Freedom from guilt. We sang about those things today. Chains breaking. Shame covered. Freedom from a life of futility and that he takes your life and invests its every moment with something that matters because he ties your every moment to eternity, which means that it matters. And then finally, freedom to authentically do. And this is going to sound a little crazy, but stay with me. He frees you to do whatever it is that you want to do. But here's why. Because as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, here's what you discover. You discover that you want to do things that previously you would have never wanted to do. (laughs) And now you don't want to do things that previously you worshipped. He changes and transforms your heart. So many of us look at Christ and we go, oh, I'd have to give up this and I have to forget all of that. He changes your want to. It's a remarkable thought. Martin Luther said this, and I think it's brilliant. He said, love God and do whatever you want. Because every one of us knows, what do you want to do for someone that you love? You want to do the things that please them, even if it's costly to you. It's your joy to sacrifice because you're motivated by love. Not guilt, not shame, not ought to, but want to. So why is Jesus different from every other religious leader and everyone else that has ever lived? Okay, well, here's why. Because their tombs are occupied and his tomb is empty, which means God exists, he's personal, his name is Jesus, and everything that he offers to you, freedom from failure, futility, and a thousand other things, are rock-solid valid offers. So happy Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have come in the person of Jesus, and we thank you that he is different, that he is not like me, that he's not like us, that he's not like any other religious leader, that he's unlike anyone who has ever lived, and that he is God made man, come to rescue us. Lord, we need rescuing. God, I pray that you would give us the humility to embrace the reality that we need to be rescued from our failures, that we need to be saved from futility. Give us faith in this Jesus such that we bring our hearts and minds and lives to him such as they are. Lay them down before him 
Ask him to forgive us. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. And then implant within our hearts your loves. Let us learn how to be free by living for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.